Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr Kate Steele and I'm Dr Kate McCrossan and today's episode is Sugar How You Get So High where we discuss the perioperative management of SGLT2 inhibitors. As always, in this podcast we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Today we're talking about the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors, otherwise known as the SGLT2 inhibitors, including some background pharmacokinetics, the types of agents and how they are used, and their management in the perioperative period. So you've likely heard of these drugs, empagliflozin, dipagliflozin, and etugliflozin, etugliflozin, I'm not sure, but they are the three licensed for use within Australia. In recent years, we've seen an increase in the brand names under which these drugs are prescribed. As an aside, I think brand names like Forksager have me confused as to whether these are diabetic drugs or pieces of IKEA furniture. But we've also seen the development of tablets combining these drugs with other oral hyperglycemics like metformin and the glyptins. As anaesthetists, it's always been important for us to know exactly what the patient is taking and how that will impact our anaesthetic. Now, it's even more important to take the time to check the active ingredient in a new brand name diabetic medication, particularly one that's unfamiliar. But let's start by unpacking the pharmacology. Now, there are two types of sodium glucose co-transporters. They're referred to as SGLT1 and SGLT2. SGLT1 is responsible for the majority of the glucose absorption in the intestine, whereas SGLT2 is responsible for about 90% of the glucose reuptake in the proximal tubule in the nephron. So if you inhibit the SGLT2 transporter, in short, this prevents glucose reuptake in the nephron and thus promotes glucose excretion in the urine. And it is this mechanism that's utilized to lower the serum glucose levels. Yep, that's correct. The SGLT2 inhibitors actually inhibit the activity of both SGLT1 and SGLT2, but they have different selectivity profiles ranging from 1,200 times to 2,700 times. So presumably, losing the glucose in the urine and reducing serum glucose improves glycemic controls. But do they cause hypoglycemia? Well, interestingly, they don't. There's actually a really low risk of hypoglycemia with the use of these drugs. Other things to know about is that you can get side effects that include weight loss, a reduction in visceral fat, and natriuresis with a reduction in BP. So these can actually be used for beneficial purposes in patients that have cardiovascular disease as well as diabetes, and we all know that these often go hand in hand. Now, this natriuresis has led to an interest in the use of the SGLT2 inhibitors with regards to sort of their cardiovascular and renoprotective properties. And there's ongoing research in how these drugs can be utilised to improve cardiac outcomes. Okay, there's a great table that we found on page 254 of 2019's ANSCA Blue Book, which summarises some of the recent trials assessing the renal and cardiovascular outcomes in patients taking SGLT2 inhibitors. There have been some benefits shown, and there may even be a future application of the use of these drugs in patients that don't have diabetes, but we'll have to stay tuned. So while these drugs may seem amazing, there is obviously one big drawback. We've all seen alerts coming into our inbox regarding the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis in the perioperative period in patients taking the SGLT2 inhibitors, but it's not classic DKA, is that right? Yeah, so over the last few years, there have been increasing reports of patients developing severe acidosis during the perioperative period. Interestingly enough, it can present as euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, but it may also present as hyperglycemic DKA. Risk is increased in the perioperative period due to the fasting, the physiological effects of surgery, or if the patients are already unwell when they come in. 
Now, in terms of the mechanism through which these drugs predispose to ketoacidosis, the pathophysiology is really complex, so we're not going to discuss it in full, but we'll keep things simple uh, where you can go and read the Ansco Blue Book article where it's explained in full. And actually, that's a fantastic article. So let's unpack some, some of the pathways through which we get a diabetic ketoacidosis with these drugs. Now, separate to the direct effects on the SGLT1 and 2 transporter proteins, these drugs appear to have multiple effector sites that shift the body's pathways towards ketogenesis. Specifically, we see an increase in the ratio of glucagon to insulin. Now, if we then take these patients uh, and get them to fast, this further promotes ketogenesis. And as well as this, putting them under surgical stress can cause an increase in circulating adrenaline and cortisol, which subsequently results in increased glucagon synthesis and release and promotes insulin resistance. All of these additional mechanisms support ketogenesis and can collectively precipitate a ketoacidotic state. Okay, so we're taking someone who's on a drug that already has a baseline tending them towards a high glucagon to insulin ratio, we are fasting them and then they're stressing them out with surgery mm. and multiple mechanisms then push them towards a ketogenic state. Absolutely. Okay. So what's the best way to diagnose this ketoacidosis? Because traditionally what I would do in a diabetic patient with suspected DKA, we would do a blood sugar level, do urinary ketones. I know ED is now doing more blood ketones, but how do we actually go about that? Yeah, so first and foremost – as we've mentioned previously, it's important to remember these patients can either have a DKA in a hypoglycemic or a euglycemic state. Um, often these symptoms, the symptoms that you'll see in these patients are things like abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, tachycardia. They can get an altered mental state. Um, they can be dehydrated or can have some sort of unexplained acidosis. Now, when we say this, it's important to remember that if you have a patient that's on these drugs and is post-surgery, many of those symptoms can be occurring anyway as a result of potentially having major abdominal surgery and the after effects of anesthesia. So it's important to have a high index of suspicion. And as we've said before, this state can present either preoperatively before you even touch the patient, intraoperatively or postoperatively. It can occur within hours or even after weeks in rare cases. Yeah, so you mentioned before that, you know, this can present and be hard to diagnose. Mm. And there has been a rare case, um, for example, there was someone who had an exploratory laparotomy in an attempt to rule out other differential diagnoses. And you can so easily see how this would mm. happen. You can just see a patient in PACU who's had an abdominal procedure, they have abdominal pain and they're vomiting. That would yeah. not be uncommon in PACU. Exactly. So you really need to keep a high index of suspicion in someone who's on these on, on this drug. Yeah. So... Previously, people have relied on urinary keto ketone testing, but it isn't actually particularly reliable in these patients that are taking these drugs. So blood ketone testing is what's recommended. Now, if blood ketones are above one millimole per liter in the perioperative period, DKA should be considered. Uh, also consider that if the patient has a low pH or a low bicarbonate with a high anion gap, that it may be worthwhile investigating further and specifically looking at blood ketones. Okay, so we've talked about what some of the adverse effects can be in patients having surgery on the SGLT2 inhibitors. But the question is, how exactly then do we manage these drugs in the perioperative period? There seems to be a bit of confusion around the best practice with regards to how long it's to withhold them and for various grades of procedures. What do we know at this stage? Well, it's important to recognise that at this stage, there really is no consensus around the perioperative management of these drugs. 
That said, there is a document that was published in January of this year that was co-developed by ANSCA, the Australian Diabetes Society, the New Zealand Society for the Study of Diabetes, Diabetes Australia, and the Australian Diabetes Educators Association. In summary, what they suggest is that for surgical procedures requiring more than one day in hospital and or possibly requiring bowel prep, that these drugs should be ceased for the two days prior to surgery and on the day of. For day surgery, that's including endoscopy, we just need to stop these drugs for the day of the procedure and minimize fasting. Whenever these patients present for any sort of surgical procedure, they advise measuring both the blood sugar level and blood ketones. If the ketones are less than one millimole per liter, then you can safely proceed with the surgery. You should also consider doing hourly BSL and blood ketones during the procedure and two hourly following the surgery until the patient's eating or drinking. And we should note that the uh, requirement to cease these drugs two days before for um surgeries over one day or the bowel prep that does include colonoscopy which is important because we all see a lot of patients presenting for colonoscopies Mm, definitely if the sglt2 inhibitor wasn't ceased appropriately when the patient presents for their procedure there is a table of suggested actions in the ANSCA document the course of actions may range from a well patient who doesn't have any metabolic derangement in which you may weigh up the goals with the surgeons with endocrinology and critical care Or you might end up having a ketotic patient in front of you who should definitely be postponed for non-urgent surgery. If the ketones are over one millimole per litre, the suggestion is to take an arterial or venous gas to measure the base excess. If it is under minus five millimoles per litre, the patient has presumed DKA. If the blood sugar is under 14 millimoles per litre, this is presumed to be euglycemic DKA. Individual institutions have developed their own guidelines for the perioperative management of these patients, so always consult your own institution's guidelines first, but this document does provide a general guide. So in summary, if they've stopped the SGLT2 inhibitor appropriately and are well, you can proceed uh, as above with the suggestions for testing. If the patient is unwell, however, or they haven't stopped the drug, they need to test their blood sugar and their blood, not their urine ketones. Consult an endocrinologist if you have any doubts. Sounds like a good plan. So at the end of every episode of Deep Breaths, we uh, generally say what we've learned in anesthesia this week. So Kate, what have you learned in anesthesia this week? Well, I learned that even in a normal patient with an easy bag mask ventilation and easy endotracheal intubation, that tracheal respiratory droplets can be dispersed up to a meter and a half in all directions, um, which obviously has huge implications in the setting of a current pandemic. Kate, what have you learned this week? So this week, I learned that a sciatic nerve can appear to branch at more than one point. Typically, when we do a nerve block at the popliteal fossa, we are aiming to block both the tibial and the common perineal nerve. I had a patient who it appeared to have a split point around about the popliteal fossa, but had pain in recovery. And when we re-scanned, we found that in fact, the branch point was much further up, or proximally up the thigh than we first thought. We successfully blocked the sciatic nerve there, and the patient had excellent analgesia. So always have a very good scan for your sciatic nerves. They can be a little tricky than first appears. Good on you for catching it. That's really good. Well, it's been a content-heavy discussion on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We'd love it if you spread the word to follow us on your favorite podcast platform and even review us. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, please feel free to let us know. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.